So anyways, God's redemptive story. So we've been kind of working from Genesis, creation, all the way to Revelations. And I just wanted to intro with a question today. Um, it's called the, so imagine you're asleep, right, in your bed, and all of a sudden you get abducted by alien dolphins. You're in their spacecraft, and they've restrained you, and for a full half hour, they slap you with their fins as hard as they can, but it doesn't hurt too bad because their fins are soft and really smooth, but it still stings a little bit. And then at the end of that 30 minutes of dolphin torture, you get put back into your bed, and before you, before you get sent home, they tell you, just like we slapped you today, in a week, we're going to slap Orange County and destroy it. Okay, you're back in your room. And it's like, it's like a big dolphin-like spaceship with a big like fin that's going to come and crush Orange County. Okay, so you're back in your room. You know this is going to happen in a week. What do you do? What are you going to do? So I want you to break off into groups of twos or threes and ask what you're going to do from there. All right, I'll give you guys like two minutes. And we'll play music so it's less awkward. All right, thanks so much for sharing about your hypothetical scenario. Um, you know, I think that some of us don't care about other people. You just leave the county and be fine. Others of you are more creative and care about your friends and would somehow trick them to come with you. Others of you are cult leaders and people would actually believe a dolphin adopted you and, <laughs> and he would follow you to the ends of the earth. Um, but I think no matter what, um, what you would do, you would do something, right? If you really believed that a dolphin was going to slap Orange County and destroy it, you would do something. And, you know, what I feel like we're getting at in this, um, this there's a point to this, um, we're going through the Bible timeline, we worked, worked through Genesis, last week we talked about renew and how God's placed us here to continue his mission forward, but the next two weeks we're talking about the future. We're talking about the second coming of Christ this week. And the next week, we're talking about the millennial kingdom. And, it is, you know, I'm not going to pull out huge charts and explain, like, every date. But there are some really, um, really important things that I believe God is trying to communicate to us about our future. And why our future is important is because it affects our present, right? You believing that a dolphin's going to slap Orange County affects not only a week from now when, when Orange County is destroyed— by a big dolphin fin, but also it affects your moment right now and the, and the decisions you're going to make in the near future. It affects the trajectory of your life and your relationship and how you perceive work. And I wonder if we have a clearer concept of the future that God is painting for us. How would it affect the way we do life now? How would it affect our present? You know, I think that this generation, we're all futurists because the future moves so quickly into the present now, right? If you lived a few hundred years ago, the, your lifestyle and the lifestyle of your father and your great-grandfather and your great-grandfather are pretty similar. You know, maybe you found a new metal that's a little bit more sturdy, but that's about it. And now we live in a generation where the future comes at us lightning speed and we're trying to navigate it and understand it so that we can live in a way that's relevant now for what's ahead. And I hope that we would have this perspective when it comes to Scripture as well. 
when it comes to God's grand story. He gives us a lot of the ending. And I wonder if, if we really believe in that ending, if we believe in the coming of Christ and the setting up of his kingdom, how does it change the, tra- the trajectory of our life? How does that future impact the way that we live now? So we're going to go through the Bible timeline again, but we're only doing it two more times because then we're flipping top- topics. We're probably going to walk through the book of Romans uh, over the fall and for the next year. So Adam and Eve, um, they get, they've been given great stewardship when God creates them, right? It wasn't like, yay, go play with butterflies and make sandcastles. It was like, steward the whole earth. That's like a big job, right? God gives them the whole earth to steward, to take over, to, to um, expand his kingdom and put into order. And yet he's God and they're simply stewards. And one of the most core aspects of Satan's temptation at the fall was them saying, him saying to Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You're not just a steward anymore. You're not just a manager, but you're going to be like God. And I think some of that is the mantra of our generation, right? Just be you. Uh, this is your truth. You know, do, do what you want to do, right? Like everything is about us being God, us having control, us determining the, determining the destiny of our lives. And I think that's really where what sin is. Us being God, us being king, instead of God being God and God being king. And when Adam and Eve falls into sin, they don't, you know, just crush roly-polies or, you know, kick trees, but it goes into this, this deep depravity where right away um, Cain murders his own brother and then it says in uh, Genesis right at, at Noah that people's thoughts were evil all the time, that every inkling of their heart was evil. But instead of God, God does something really interesting to me. He doesn't just take away Adam and Eve's stewardship, right? He doesn't like, oh, you messed up, whoop. Earth's mine again, and you're kicked out. Their stewardship actually permeates past their sin, and the whole earth is corrupt um, in it. And then we have God raise up the nation of Israel. And God say, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And as I rule over you, and as you steward your nation, um, there's going to be prosperity. There's going to be security. People are going to have purpose. There's going to be shalom. People will be able to have peace with me again, peace with each other, and peace with the earth. And they experienced that for a number of years with David and Solomon, even though they were imperfect. But then for most of Israel's history, they're unable to live out their purpose because of sin, because they were always worshiping idols and turning away from God. And I hope that at some point in your Christian walk, or maybe you've already crossed it, you would see sin as disruptive to your purpose and calling, to being fulfilled in the Lord, that it wouldn't be as glittery as it used to be. But as Israel is falling away from God, there are these prophets who start talking about a Messiah that is to come. Um, this, This person who would come and rule over the earth and bring shalom again in, in, in its perfection, 
that he would restore our hearts and put us at peace with God, that he would allow mankind to be vulnerable with each other and trust each other and love each other, and that there would be peace in the earth, there would be no more war or famine or disaster, that he would not only forgive sins, but bring peace to the entire nations. It was, it's as if they believed in Superman, right? We, we know of Superman, and there's a part of us that wishes for him, someone who has enough power to stop evil and compassion to carry it out. And the Jewish people had this concept of a Superman, someone who was powerful, morally uncorruptible, that was actually going to show up and destroy evil. They had their faith in this person, and there was prophecies about him. So we hear a lot of prophecies from Isaiah and maybe uh, Daniel and um, a- about Jesus forgiving sins, being the lamb, dying the cross for our sins. But there's this other prophecies that we don't dig into as much, um, like this one. And this is kind of what throws off the Jews when, when we say Jesus is the Messiah, because he doesn't do these things, not yet at least. Why do nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have instilled my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. This happens at the baptism of Jesus. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with the rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he may be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So they're expecting a king. They're expecting someone who would come in power, uh, uplift the nation of Israel, put other nations at his feet, and then in that power bring peace and prosperity to the whole earth. And when you look at um, the prophet's vantage point, it's kind of like there's these prophecies about Jesus being the lamb, sacrificing himself for our sin. And right alongside of that, there's prophecies about him being king. And it's as if these prophets see these two um, events, maybe symbolized by mountaintops, as one whole event. So instead of seeing like two mountain ranges separated by a valley, they see it as one event. This Messiah will come at a point in time, you know, uh, forgive us of our sins, reconcile us with God, but also rule other nations as well. And that was their expectation of Jesus when he came. Um, You see it several times in his ministry. When he rises in popularity and thousands of people follow him, it says that they force him to become king. They're trying to crown him in that very moment to become king because that's what the Messiah was supposed to do. And when he refused it, they went from wanting to crown him to wanting to kill him, push him off a cliff. In another um, part of the narrative, Jesus is going into Jerusalem and they're like, oh man, this is happening. 
He's going to sit as king in Jerusalem. So they start laying down palm branches right in front of him. And this is how they welcome kings into their kingdom. And they're really proclaiming and expecting Jesus to take the throne in Israel. And finally, we have the legion, uh, or sorry, we have the Roman army approaching Jesus to arrest him. And his disciples are like, okay, we're going to war, right? Peter's like, it's me and us 12 plus Jesus versus like this army of Roman guards, but we're going to take them out. Why? Because Jesus can raise the dead and heal people, right? So he's, he's charging them with this little knife. He's like, if my arm gets chopped off, Jesus is going to like grow back. If I get killed, Jesus is going to resurrect. We're invincible. Let's do this, you know? And then um, he's seen Jesus like take power over the earth over walking on water, winds and waves, and he's expecting him to like throw Hadoukens and have like fire rain from the sky. So he, he's, he's stoked, right? He's hyped up about this. And then as he's cutting off this, the servant's ear, Jesus says, if you live by the sword, you die by it. Put it away. I'm going with them. And it causes massive confusion, massive. Um, his disciples aren't running away because they don't believe in him as Messiah. They're running away because they don't think he is the Messiah anymore. They start denying him. They start forsaking him because they don't understand that God had a different plan. God was going to send the Messiah, Jesus, onto earth twice, right? And the first time he comes, it's like there's that first mountain of Jesus' first coming where he fulfills all the prophecy having to do with him being the Lamb of God giving his life for the sins of the world. Jewish people had a very clear concept of this. They actually had a sacrificial system in which these lambs would take their sin from them. And Jesus is saying, those are just symbols. I'm actually the lamb. I'm the one who's going to die for the sins of the entire earth. But then there's this huge gap, I would say the age of the church, in which Jesus ascends and gives us the gospel and allows us to go from one Um, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, sharing his kingdom, having people put themselves under his rule for now 2,000 years. But he's saying, I'm going to come back. And all these prophecies about me being king and ruling and and putting the nations under me um, in justice and mercy and prosperity, that's going to happen as well. So that's where we are. Um, You are here, and um, I don't know how much further Jesus is coming back. Now, we're looking at Matthew chapter 24, and poor children's ministry. I went through the whole passage with them. Molly fell asleep twice. Um, She woke up twice, then fell asleep five more times. It was very cute. Uh, Nina stayed awake for most of it. All right, here we go. So Matthew chapter 24, I was listening to a a few sermons, and one of them, D.A. Carson, he just, his entire hour and a half sermon is about four different perspectives theologically on this passage, right? That's how he spent his hour and a half. And I think he landed somewhere, but I wasn't sure. So I'm giving you one of many perspectives on this passage. It is a confusing passage, and this is why. In verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 2, if you have your Bibles, you can pull it out. It's a lot easier than reading on the screen. And I encourage you to have your own Bible so you can mark it up and know where to find verses like this. But anyways, chapter 2, it says, um, Jesus walks out of the temple, and he tell, he's like, hey, disciples, look at that building, the temple. It's really beautiful. Do you see this? 
I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So he's saying that the temple of Jerusalem is going to be demolished, which is a big deal for the Jewish people and the disciples who are Jews. Then the disciples pull him aside. He's like, man, Jesus, don't say that too loud, right? And then he said, but then they said, tell us, when will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So there's two separate questions that I would say Jesus is interlacing in his answer in the, at the rest of verse 24. The first question is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And the second one is, when, basically, when, is your, when are you coming back again to establish your kingdom? So the destruction of the temple happens in AD 80, 80, and his second return hasn't happened yet, right? But the first, like, uh, from verse 4 to verse, I want to say 32, we can look at it later, he takes these two, an- these two questions and starts to interlace them. Because I think what happens is that in the destruction of the temple in AD 80, there's things that happen leading up to the destruction of the temple that is actually a foreshadow or like a precursor to Jesus' second coming. That the same thing that happened here will happen again, kind of like the matrix, all right? And so I'm going to point out those similarities to you while skipping a ton of verses so you don't have to sleep and wake up and sleep and wake up like Molly. All right. So um, here are one, here's one of the things that happens. Right prior to AD 80, <laughs> AD, AD <laughs> um, these messiahs start showing up. And they start saying, I am the messiah, and I'm going to be king, and we're going to defeat the Roman Empire. And so one of them actually gathers a large following, and they incite violence and rebellion against the Roman Empire, which is ruling the Jews at the time, giving them quite a bit of freedom compared to other, uh, other countries that they've conquered. And this time, the Roman Empire, emperor, he's really upset, and he's like, I'm done dealing with them. I'm just going to wipe them out. So they run into Jerusalem. They slaughter all kinds of people, and they destroy the temple, all right? So the first sign is that there's messiahs that have come out to deceive. And then Jesus kind of adds this in there, and he says, and I think this is pertaining to his second coming, not to the first question. So sometimes they overlap, and sometimes they're separated. He says, and this is the gospel of the kingdom will be preached, sorry, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So this is in reference to that second question. Then Jesus kind of comes back to this overlap, and he says, and you will see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel. So Daniel prophesies about this. Jesus prophesies about this. It's also prophesied in, uh, through John and Revelations. All right, and then I'll explain that a little bit later. Um, Then Jesus comes back to, not the overlap, but kind of like his second coming, and he describes it. He says, I'm going to come in clouds in heaven with great power and glory. I will send angels with a loud trumpet. They will gather the elect in the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And then he says um, in verse 34, which I think is now restricted to the destruction of the temple in AD 80, And he says, truly, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. All right. And so here are the things that I feel like are overlapping. Here are the things 
you know, a lot of people, they study the end times and they have all kinds of things that they feel like are signs of Jesus' return. There's actually this book called The Bible Code, which, yeah, was a piece of trash. But all these people read it and got excited and they give out all these like predictions. But I think for me, at least, these are four, three legit predictions of Jesus coming back. Okay, these are three I buy into. First, um, just as it happened in AD 80, that there were people going out, uh, deceiving people that, the Messiah, that they were the Messiah, I believe that that will happen uh, at the, in the end times. That there will be people who go out, claim to be God, claim to be the Messiah, claim to be Jesus coming back, and that a ton of people are going to believe them, right? So this actually hasn't really happened right now. Like, I don't see, like, someone on the news saying, I'm Jesus, and, like, like filling stadiums. But I think that's going to happen. I think that's one of the prophecies that will actually be a sign of Jesus' coming. Uh, the second one that has to do with um, kind of the, the foreshadow um, from AD 80, the destruction of the temple, is that I, I believe that this will happen again. I, I take, I'm going to kind of lay out my theology next week in terms of um, uh, eschatology, the end times. But I believe that um, the temple will be rebuilt and it will be again like soiled by this antichrist figure, this, this Messiah that everyone believes is real. He's going to go into this temple and kind of sit on his throne claiming, claiming power if that makes sense, uh, just like it happened in eighty eighty. all right? And then the last thing, and I think maybe the most, the one I'm most attached to is Jesus saying that the gospel will reach the entire world before his coming. And that's actually a really cool, like measurable way to timeline or anticipate the coming of Christ, right? At first, we weren't able to even reach the whole world, but over the last 50 years, we have transportation devices that allow us to reach the ends of the earth. We're linguistically able to translate very efficiently into other languages. Uh, Crew and Epic, the organizations that we partner with very heavily that me and Jonathan are on leadership for, we actually have missionaries in every um, country in the world. Isn't that kind of phenomenal? Just one organization, right? Uh, We're massive. But we have a missionary in every country of the world trying to get the gospel across. And so if the other two don't fit your theology, maybe you're a millennialist or whatnot, I think we can all buy into this one. And it's, for me, extremely motivating to see people who don't have an opportunity to hear the gospel get reached with the gospel, knowing that this is actually hastening uh, the return of Christ, right? Okay. So now we're going to slow down, and Jesus kind of gives, um, and other prophets give signs of his return, which I think are really interesting, but I feel like can, can miss the point a little bit too. I remember in, in uh, high school, I um, got really caught up in the end times, our, our whole church was, and it distracted me from school, and um, you know, we just started predicting the Antichrist and reading trash books like Bible Code. You know, um, but I think that there's, that Jesus, he leaves, he makes it extremely um, clear that no one knows when he's coming back, right? And that's what he describes in, in 36. He says, but the day or hour, no one knows. No one has a precise 
uh, ability to say when Jesus is coming back. Not even the angels, nor the son, nor himself. He didn't know at his time on earth when he was coming back, but only the father. And then he describes it like in the day of Noah. Like people weren't ready for the flood. They didn't know it was coming. They were getting married. They were going to work. And all of a sudden the flood came and took everyone away. And that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 40, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding, one at the meal, and the other taken, and the other left. Right? When he comes back, he's going to gather all of, everyone who believes in him, everyone who puts their faith in him, they're going to uh, be raptured. They're going to meet him in, uh, in the sky. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. You know, I, I understand this, <laughs> um, but I didn't understand why. Like, why is it that God isn't just giving us the exact time of his return? And then 1988 happened, all right? There was this um, NASA worker, um, engineer named Ben Lee. No, I'm just kidding. Um, who predicted the coming of Jesus to be 1988. And he wrote a book about it. And he had this cult following, but it grew. And then they started handing out literature, and they handed out 300 copies of his exact mathematical formula for Jesus coming back in 1988. And then it became mainstream. It was crazy. It was like a pop culture phenomenon. And now 4 million copies of this book on Jesus coming back in 1988 was distributed all across America, right? Good times. I wish I was there. And like news articles were being written on it. It was like a big deal. And of course, Jesus didn't come in 1988. But the more interesting thing is that when people bought into this concept, when people really believed that Jesus was coming back, they didn't go on missions. They didn't pray. They didn't sell their possessions and give it to the poor. Everyone quit their jobs and went on vacation. And that's why we don't know when Jesus is coming back. Because <laughs> um, we're, we're, not, we're not good enough. Um, so instead, Jesus has us live in this tension. He says to keep watch. I am coming. Superman is returning, right? The, the problems we don't know what to do with, we long for Jesus to resolve. We long for him to give us an answer to famine and viruses. When we, when we look at complete disgust and, and at the horrific scenes of what ISIS is doing all over, you know, Iraq, um, and we don't know how to take care of it because they use children as shield. Right? We long for a superman to come and be able to stop a bullet between the hand of the terrorist and the, the body of a child and just remove them. And that's why we long for Christ, because he is that superman that we've been waiting for. This man, this God with, with immense power, but who is compassionate and cares enough to remove evil. And yet he calls us to wait and anticipate and this is the parable that he shares. He, and not only does he share this parable, he follows it up with two, two more. 
all around this concept of stewardship, all around what it means to wait, to live in this tension of anticipating the future, but being present in the world we live in today, in our age. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? It would be good for that servant when, when, oh, sorry, it would be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And when he, and then begins to beat his fellow servants to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come in a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus talks about stewardship here. This is how you anticipate the coming Christ. If you believe he's coming, then you are to take everything he's put you in stewardship of and use it to serve him, to serve the master. And I've been thinking about leadership and humility and stewardship for a while. Like, I'm surprised at the capacity and the way that God delegates to us, right? When, when God delegated Adam and Eve to earth and they messed up, he wasn't like, give it back. He was like, well, if you mess this up, like everything under you is messed up too. But that's a lot of authority being released. When God delegated to the kings of Israel, uh, his country, his people, and they worshiped idols, the whole country was corrupted and worshiped idols with them. God didn't just take it away. At the time in which he gives us to steward, he gives us to steward, you know, those things. And so I've just been really trying to live in the reality of the authority and power that God's given me. Um, over this church, you know, to again, we have elders, so it's to a limited degree. Over Epic, to a limited degree. Over my life, over my family. And I think about it in one capacity in terms of stewardship, the destructive ability I have over all of these things, right? Like I could literally take a knife and like kill myself. That's a lot of ability God's given me in terms of authority and power and delegation, right? I could take all of the money we've accumulated in our reserve, and I could pretty much go to Vegas, right? I mean, without, of course, approval of the leadership, but I have access to our checking account. It's scary, kind of, maybe. I could take our, our money, and I could just go play hardcore, high-level state poker. I'm pretty good, you know? <laughs> and I could just kind of decimate the whole church's financial status, right? I could, um, I, could, I could be abusive to Nina and ruin our marriage. So I think, I think when you really grapple with the kind of stewardship that God's given you in maybe the destructive ability that you have, I think it's sobering to say when God delegated this to us, it was for real. It was a real stewardship. We can use it to his advantage. We can steward it 
it well. We can use it for the master because he owns it and I don't. Or we can like beat up our fellow servants, I guess, and get drunk. I think at the end of the day, when we look at the future and really believe Jesus is coming back and that he's the master and we're the stewards, there's this sense that we don't know when he's coming. And in there, we don't know when our lives will be held accountable, but it will be because we don't own it. That Jesus will show up one day, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one, our creator, the one who's given us the next breath in our lungs, all the days of our life, our education, our intelligence, our wealth, our beauty, and, he'll, and we'll lay it before him. And either we'll have used it for the king, either we'll have had oriented our life around him and his kingdom and said, man, I've messed up, of course. I went my own way sometimes, but the, the, trajectory, the trajectory of my life is that I looked at my years and I tried to spend it on you. I look at my finances and I had you and the poor and your kingdom in mind. I look at the talent you've given me and, I, I, and the platform and the places of power and instead of it being about my name and my pleasure and my happiness, I served you, Jesus. And for those of us who are really giving our lives to him, right? That's what it means to be Christian, to give our lives to this king. There should be the sense of great, joy meeting our king whom we've spent our entire life serving when he comes if he were to show up in this room right now for those of us who just spent our lives serving him we'd just be like dude i told like i would just look around like i told you he was real you know like look he's real and like none of us will ever regret any portion of our life that we surrender to him right we're never going to when he shows up, it's not like, man, I really wish I didn't give that last dollar in the offering bag. <laughs> wish I spent it on a Pokemon ball, you know? Um, man, I wish I didn't, uh, I wish I spent, you know, time playing Overwatch instead of, you know, really investing in people. I don't know, like, when he shows up, either you spent your life for him or you haven't, right? And I think that's the delineation between a true Christian and someone who isn't. A true Christian receives God and says, you are my king. And God gives us the power to realign. He reshapes our hearts so that we desire to serve him. And then in Matthew 25, there's the sheep and the goats. The people who said, you're my king. The people who said, I'm saying prophecies for you. But Jesus saying, man, like, you never aligned your life to me. You never served the least of these. You just served yourself. You're really the king. You're really your own God. And I never knew you. You were the servant who took power and just beat other people up and wasted it. The evidence of our true faith in God is that we follow him, is that our life are, is aligned to him. Not that we don't make mistakes. But I hope that, you know, some of you guys are considering this Christian thing. And I hope that that would be what you consider. 
Do I want this life to be about me? Or do I want to really give my life to this, my creator and have him rule it? And he'll help you to do that. And for those of us who have been Christian for a long time, I hope you'll ask that question as well. Is my life about me? Or am I a steward anticipating the coming of the king, desiring for him to arrive because when I lay out my life and my finances and my talents, I've used it for him. I've always served him. I've always wanted him to be known. I've always wanted him to be king. Um, we have five minutes, and I think the most powerful part of our time together is how we can pray for each other. Oh, man, do I have a next slide, Ben? No. All right. That's, I have a... Sorry. Not your fault. It's my fault. Okay. Um, ownership. See? That whole, like, stewarding thing? Okay, so um, here's my question. I would love for us to kind of go back to the groups we started this conversation with about uh, dolphin slapping and um, ask two questions. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? Like, do you really believe he's coming back? Um, and if you do, or if you don't, but if it's, yeah, how would you, how would your life, or should your life, or would your life look different um, in him coming? In, in this reality in this perception and belief of a future in which Jesus comes and our life are placed in front of him, how does that reality shape or should shape the way we live now? Does that make sense? And I would love for us, maybe some of us, to say, man, this part of my life, I've really been king over. And if God were to examine it, he would say, yeah, you're king of that. What is it that we still need to place in front of God? And we all have that stuff, right? Like, if God was king of every aspect of our lives, we would be perfect. And we're all messed up. Like we all was king over something that we're still messing up and we're still hurting other people in. And so I wonder what is it that we can bring before God to say, man, God, I really want and need you to be king over this area. I need to surrender this to you. So those are my questions. As you look into the future, if you really believe Jesus is coming, how should that shape your present? And are there specific things that you can give to the Lord? As we um, enter into worship after you pray, I would love for you to um, share, pray, and then take communion together if you believe that Jesus um, is your... Oh, thanks. It's a miracle. Well done. Well done, sir. Um, anyways, yeah, so these questions. love for you to pray for each other. I'd love for you to take communion together, all right? Father, we just come to you today, and um, we forget you're coming back a lot. I forget it, but I hope that it's a future that you desire us to hold in front of our lives and to wrap our lives around, that the mystery of when you're coming um, is, the intention of that is that we don't know, and so we're always anticipating it. It could be at any moment. Um, and I pray that in that anticipation, it would shape our lives. As we pray for each other, as we take communion, would you be a part of this time? In Jesus' name, amen.